Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The name of the holiday, Juneteenth, refers to June 19, 1865, the day that enslaved African Americans in Texas were told that slavery had ended. Two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed, and over two months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant, ending the Civil War, Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. The Atlanta History Center is celebrating the holiday throughout this entire month, and later we'll learn about their special events. First, according to the world-famous chef and humanitarian Jose Andres, Farmer Lee Jones is the Willy Wonka of chlorophyll. Jones's family farm in Ohio, the chef's garden, has become the most renowned specialty produce grower in America. Now, there's a book co-written by Farmer Lee Jones with Kristen Donnelly called The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables with Recipes. Farmer Lee joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Life. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been so excited about this. Well, I have been absolutely enthralled with this book. It's magnificent. And Chef Jose Andres wrote the foreword to your book, a very loving foreword, I might add. And in it, he says, no farmers have touched the lives of so many chefs and literally touched the vegetables destined for so many fine dining tables around the country as the Jones family. But your farm wasn't always devoted to chefs. Would you share the origin story of the chef's garden with us? Absolutely. And, you know, I'll just have to say that we got the foreword someplace in the middle of the pandemic. And when I received that foreword before it went in the book, I literally wept. 
It was just so kind and so generous and so beautiful. And as Jose has always been to, to me personally and to the world, to all of the efforts that he's made. Our farm is actually located right on Lake Erie in Huron, Ohio. And it's in an amazing microclimate. And if you go back before roads and refrigeration had really developed to the point where there was a lot of outside competition, I'm talking like in the 30s, this area had such an amazing microclimate. And then if you think about Cleveland, Ohio being one hour east and Toledo, Ohio, one hour west, Columbus, Ohio, two hours south, Detroit, Michigan, an hour and a half away, Pittsburgh, three and a half hours, large metropolitan areas with big volumes of people. And then this amazing microclimate. Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest. And the soil that we're on is some of the richest sandy loam in the world. It was all old lake bottom about 11,000 years ago. And as near as we can figure, there were about 330 vegetable growers in this county. And as far as we can figure, the largest concentration of vegetable growers of any county in the world. And they were truck farmers. They would harvest their products, take them in. If the listeners can go back to when they were a child in the city that they were raised in and think about the family-owned grocery stores that existed before the chain grocery stores moved in, all of the grocery store buyers would meet those farmers at about 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night and they would exchange and the product would go to those grocery store buyers and then out to those grocery stores. And that's really kind of the origins of where our family started in the vegetable business. Now, your dad began farming in the 1950s. What did the development of corporate farming in the 1970s mean for small family farms such as yours? Well, you know, everything was about getting bigger. Of course, some folks may not remember, but there was a fellow by the name of Earl Butts. He was the Secretary of Agriculture of the United States, and his message to farmers was to get big or get out. Mm. And that's kind of what was happening as chain grocery stores came in, as roads and refrigeration got better. Areas like Arizona and California and the Carolinas and Georgia, where they had longer growing seasons, and then the roads being better in refrigeration, then the family farms were one by one by one pushed out. We were able to hold on a little longer. We had invested in hydrocooling and packaging and palletization and trucking. And we worked cooperatively with about 65 growers from our community to be able to compete. And we sold by the truckloads. And ultimately, interest rates at 22%. They're 3.5% today. But they hit 22%. We had a devastating hailstorm, and it wiped out all the crops, and the banks foreclosed. And at 19 years old, I'm the oldest in the family. I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mom and dad, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned every single tractor and every piece of equipment off right down to my mother's car and our home. Mm. That would have been in the early 80s. That one event, a hailstorm in 1980, drastically changed your lives. How did you continue your livelihood? Well, I guess through stupidity, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> we there was no money. The banks weren't loaning any money. It was just I guess we weren't smart enough to know we couldn't do it, and we just started over. And I could tell you stories that you just could hardly believe. It was it was survival mode, and we started back at farmers markets, which ironically were at a historic low, and today we see them at a joyfully we see them at a historic high, which is very exciting to see that transition happening that we're reconnecting because we lost our way in America with our connection with where our food was coming from. And that really started kind of after World War II when women were tasked to come out of the house and it was gender specific at that time because before that they had full-time jobs tending to the family and feeding the family and taking care of, of things, but they were tasked with building submarines and machine guns and army tanks to win the war. And after that, we recognized that we could become a two income household. And so the corporations recognized an opportunity to fit into convenience. Remember the frozen TV dinners and how great we thought those were? (laughs) Yes. Those nasty instant mashed potatoes and the frozen carrots and peas and the, oh my gosh, the Salisbury steak. Oh, and my mother thought it was wonderful because, you know, she could pop it out of a freezer and put it in an oven and she was done. But she had worked her 60 hours that week away from the farm and we lost our way. We it became about convenience. And um, of course, preservatives, I think, are really harmful. But we lost our connection with where our food sources were coming from. Well, because this whole mid 20th century notion that science was progress actually took away from the purest science to become industry. And we were sold a bill of goods about those canned vegetables and instant dinners. I loved how you wrote, when you grow up smelling freshly plowed ground in the spring, it just does something to you. I think it's that smell of earth and life that keeps us coming back year after year, despite the challenges. So true. So true. I think that farmers are the most optimistic people in the world. And every year we get a chance at a rebirth of a renewal of a start over. And we're worn and torn and things haven't gone exactly as we planned. And by the end of the season, you're discouraged, but come spring and the smell of the earth and you see signs of green asparagus and fiddlehead ferns and the morels poking up through and the robins returning. It's Mm -hmm. a renewal and we start over and we get another shot at it. And it's just a, it's a hopeful time of year. And we get that rebirth every single year. The book brings out how farmers and chefs learn from one another, a true exchange of knowledge. Please tell us what happened when you met Chef Iris Balin. She was a lot smarter than we were, and I guess we were smart enough to recognize that and to shut up and listen to her. And she had trained in Europe, and she was a brilliant, kind, generous woman. And she saw in Europe what she wanted here. And at that time, everything was about getting bigger. And she said, you know, she was looking originally for the squash blossom. That's how it all started for us here on the farm when we started over. And my father had grown traditional size zucchini, you know, seven and a half, eight inches long, 
two inches in diameter, 20 pounds to a carton. And he sold thousands of cartons of them. And here was this lady in a chef's jacket and she wanted the zucchini the size of your pinky with a blossom attached still <laughs> on it. And we just couldn't comprehend it at first. And, you know, we, we got through that season and we said, look, we need to come in and sit down and, and talk to you during the winter and get a better understanding of what you're trying to teach us. And she said, I believe that there would be enough chefs that would support you if you would grow without chemical, if you would grow for the flavor, if you would grow these products. She had seen that world in Europe. And it really resonated most with my dad because what she was asking for had existed in America. And my dad could remember those days. But, you know, we had lost our way. And so what she was saying really resonated with him. And so our search then to be able to find every chef we could find and learn from each other, the symbiotic relationship of the chef and farmer working together. If a chef equals one and a farmer equals one, you put those two together and it's a combined efforts of times 10. And so, you know, that of course brought us to 20 some years later, building a facility called the Culinary Vegetable Institute where chefs could actually bring their culinary teams and go into the fields with us, look at product, look at sizes and stages that we had never considered before because we were all trained from the market or at the grocery stores that things had to be in this exact perfect size and shape and they had to be waxed and they all had to be uniform. And chefs are saying, well, this stage works and this is okay. And what about when it goes to seed? And we've learned from chefs that at every single stage of a plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. And so that just gave us so many more options. And, and it gives the chef so much more paint, if you will. If you can visualize a chef having a canvas and us providing, instead of the eight pack of crayons, the 64 pack. And then the 64 pack becomes 360. And it's just in thinum of the options when we can work together and collaborate. Farmer Lee Jones of The Chef's Garden. His new book is called The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables with Recipes. We'll return to our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with Farmer Lee Jones. At his family farm, the chef's garden, everything they do is linked to the relationships they've had with chefs over 30 years. 
The Chef's Garden is also the name of Farmer Lee's beautiful new book, part memoir, reference guide, and cookbook. I found, looking at the photos of vegetables in your book, similar to viewing still-life paintings in museums or books about the 17th-century Dutch artists. The 21st-century photos in the chef's garden appear as vivid and detailed as some of the works by Rembrandt's contemporaries. Was there dialogue between you and the photographers? Well, absolutely. And I think that is one of the greatest compliments that we've ever received. And, you know, I think that the chefs actually have gone to museums and we have a chef here on the farm. In fact, the chef that did and is responsible for all the recipes, Jamie Simpson, has actually spent time in the museums and looking and, you know, it's 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 their way of expression on that plate. Look, the reality is we do eat with our eyes first. And I think that being able to explore and to be able to create and to seduce with sizes and shapes and colors and textures. And obviously, if flavor isn't there, then none of the other really works, but it really kind of comes together in a symphony. And Mm. for us as a farm to be able to offer a small part of that is just, it's such a huge honor for us to work with chefs all over America and even some internationally. And, And of course, now for folks to be able to have the product at home to work with. Now, Chef Iris Balin, I was under the impression she was French from your account of meeting her, but she had studied in France and Italy was that. I believe that she comes from Jewish origins and she studied in France and, and trained there and brought her knowledge back to Cleveland, Ohio. And she was actually a chef for a brokerage firm she would maybe be cooking for clients of four clients or 10 clients or 12 clients or some days there was no one. And so she really was able to explore and to find the local ingredients from this area and region. And that's how I met her. And she introduced you to the glories of squash blossoms. She did. And that was our first entry point into that world. And When we went in, we loaded up, my dad and my brother and I, we loaded up in a pickup truck and headed into downtown Cleveland on a Saturday morning in the middle of the winter. And we got there. And of course, the the brokerage firm was closed and she was allowed to use it. And she had this big, long conference table with all of these fancy leather chairs around. And the whole table was covered with cookbooks and marked on certain pages. And she was so excited that somebody was listening to her. And we probably spent three or four hours in there. We had a notepad full of notes. And we came back and went to work. And dad started researching. And we started experimenting and growing things. At that time in America, radicchio was all being shipped in from Italy. And the university said it can't be grown here. And of course it can, and there are many farmers around the, the country today that are growing radicchio, and it's a wonderful product. And that was just one of many, the Hercoverts and all the different varieties of, of carrots. We tended in the United States to be growing the varieties that would end up in a store or sweet potatoes or other things that yielded the most tons per acre rather than the ones that had the most flavor per mouthful. And so it was really about experimenting with those varieties that have been abandoned. Well, your dad was 
very receptive to new ideas and learning more about vegetables. Please tell us about his trip to California and the impact that made on him. He was, he was a lot of times on a farm or other places when it's a family business, you've got to kind of drag the older generation along with new ideas. And he was always out on the forefront dragging my brother and I along and was mm-hmm. just constantly, a, he was a voracious reader, but actually uh, the Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa was a trip that he made out. And Dr. Kent Waitley has done more to preserve old heirloom varieties that really were abandoned because they didn't produce enough yield or they didn't have enough disease resistance. So, you know, he loaded up with a tent and a sleeping bag and enough money to be able to get gas to make the trip and met Alice Waters out there and she was inspirational as well to him and encouraging. And this is going back, you know, into the 80s. And we were just on a quest to try and rethink what we thought we knew. And my dad has a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. And one of the things that was particularly interesting to us and alarming, if you look at the the way farmers were farming and rebuilding their soils 100 years ago, the nutritional levels were so much higher 100 years ago than they are today, because we're mimicking the real way to rebuild the soil. We're mimicking it with synthetic and chemical inputs rather than doing it the right way. And so as devastating as it was to lose the farm, it gave us a chance to rethink what we were doing, go back. A lot of our information came from agricultural books that were 100 to 150 years old. It's pretty amazing. We jokingly talk about going out and harvesting vitamin D from the sunshine. And it's so much more true. And there's so much more depth to it than that. What we have found is that we can test the soil, find out what it's deficient, much like if we were go and have blood work drawn and find that we're high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, we find out what the soil is deficient in. And then based on those deficiencies, we can plant crop specific, clover, alfalfa, buckwheat, rye, vetch. We have a 15 species cover crop planting that we plant. You harvest the sun's energy. It comes down through the plant, through the leaves, into the stem, into the roots, into the soil. And then when we plant what we want to consume, the turnips or the beets or the carrots or the radish or the spinach or the tomatoes, it picks that back up and it builds our immune system. We put a lab in on the farm and we're testing from 1930 to 2020, the nutritional levels have gone down by over 50% and they continue to go down at an increasing rate. If you can visualize, if the listeners can visualize that chart from 1930 to 2020, just declining at a 50% and increasing rate, then look at the occurrences in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, childhood obesity, allergies. There's a direct correlation with the way that we're planting and farming crops. The yields are higher, We produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income, yet here we have a health issue that's a major emerging crisis. So losing this farm, rethinking it, going back to the ways of 100 years ago, two-thirds of the acreage 
is committed to rebuilding the soil, harvesting the sun's energy. It's an unprecedented commitment to rebuilding the soil in a natural way. We're seeing results of 300 to 500% nutrient nutrient density increases over the USDA average. It works. It's about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. Well, and how do you convince consumers of the importance of quality in terms of health and well-being, the nutritional value versus a lower price for the mass-produced industrial produce? I think it's education. I think that there is an emerging group of people. I think that this pandemic, as horrific as it's been, has I guess one of the silver linings in this is that there were more gardens planted last year than in the history of the United States, even going back more gardens than the victory garden days after World War II. I think there's an emerging group of people that are concerned about their health and recognizing that what we eat makes a difference in how we feel. I'm excited about 11 Madison Park in New York City, making a bold, brilliant a statement of plant-based, plant-forward. It is our future. I think that, you know, it's a one bite at a time. Hmm. When you eat this food, you've got more pep in your step. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> I need that. If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is farmer Lee Jones of the Chef's Garden. That's also the name of the new book about his family farm, which has become a world-class success. One reviewer wrote that this hardcover tome, quote, is equal parts vegetable reference Bible, family memoir, and recipe repository with some farming and gardening know-how tossed in as well. Farmer Lee, how long did it take to produce the book, The Chef's Garden? Well, I jokingly say 40 years. (laughs) There are a lot of mistakes and a lot of our failures and a lot of our trials and a few successes, but over two and a half years to actually amass it. We lost that in August last year in 2020. We're so glad that we were able to capture some of his voice. We miss him sorely. Mm. My brother and I got to work with him every single day for 40 years, and I know we were so blessed and so lucky, and we feel like he's here with us every single day. It's a lifetime accumulation of our journey. Yeah. Would you talk about the layout of the book, or if you can, give us an overview? Well, you know, again, kind of going back to believing that every single part of the plant offers something unique to the plate. And what I mean by that is, if anybody that's listening has grown their own garden, they know that if you plant a radish or a mustard or a bok choy or something in the garden and it looks perfectly normal on Friday and then you go away for a long weekend and you come back and all of a sudden it's got this stem that has shot up through the top and it's now two feet tall and it's in bloom. And we call that shooting a seed stalk because the goal of the plant is to reproduce. It's to produce a mature seed and then that plant will die and then the seeds have started so that it can come back again. And so we categorized it certainly 
by crops, but we also categorize it by different sizes because we learned from chefs that that's an edible part of the plant. It's not ruined at that point. Those blooms from a radish or from kale or any of the cruciferous are just absolutely fabulous in a salad. They give great color or they can be put in a stir fry. So we tried to categorize it by the product type, but also by the size and looking at the plants at different stages so that they could be considered and looked at. We want to inspire people, whether they're a gardener or a home cook or a chef, to be able to play and to consider that plant not a failure because it looks different today than it did yesterday. It's still edible and other parts of the plant. If Let's take, for example, the Brussels sprout. It takes 10 months to grow this majestic, beautiful plant that gets to be three and a half or four foot tall. These gorgeous leaves that provide a canopy to keep the Brussels sprout from being sunburned. And all we do is harvest that Brussels sprout off in this gorgeous plant. We have all this energy, all the nutrients, all the water, all the love that's gone into growing this plant. And the whole rest of the plant is wasted. You know, in Europe and other countries over the hundreds of years that they've survived have learned to use every part of an animal and they waste nothing. They even use the tail of the ox. And I can think of no better way to celebrate that plant's life than to be able to utilize it all. I would challenge your listeners, if they were blindfolded, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a collard green and a Brussels sprout leaf. They're in the same family and you cannot tell the difference. So those leaves can be celebrated and consumed. And we think about bone marrow uh, from the animal, but if you pull off the outer skin of the Brussels sprout and break that stalk open, you can actually do a vegetable marrow. And it's about inspiring people to look at that plant in an entirely different way than they've ever considered it before and celebrating that plant's life by utilizing it all and not having any waste at all to that plant. Oh, it's just a glorious philosophy, a glorious attitude toward consumption. Tell us why a field of lettuce is a sight to behold. Well, absolutely. I think that's a great question. This is not mass production. If you can visualize a two-acre field, which is small, you know, we tend to see fields of things growing on television or in books, or if we've seen them personally, maybe a hundred acres or a thousand acre field, that's all one variety, one planting, and it all looks the same color. In ours, I would describe a two-acre field of our lettuce as your grandmother's quilt. It's a patchwork of pieces and parts because there are so many glorious varieties. I think we grow over 30 varieties, and we've done experimentation with over 100. But we're not trying to do mass production. A lot of times, the best salads are that with a mix of color and texture and shapes and sizes. And so every single week we do another planting of lettuce, but it may have 18 to 20 varieties. So when you look at this field, there may be a short row of a red or a lalaraso or a tango or a red oak or a painted oak. And so it looks like a patchwork in just a small two acre field with 15 to 20 varieties. What is the Chef's Garden Culinary Vegetable Institute? It was a place that my dad envisioned on a paper bag. It kind of goes back to what we talked about with the symbiotic relationship of chef and farmer working together. And he thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could build a place where chefs could come and be able to stay overnight. So there's overnight accommodations 
And then there's a full-fledged kitchen there. And it was a place for the most forward-thinking chefs in the world to be able to come and do R&R and R&D and to be able to play and to relax and to get in connection with nature. So if you can visualize, we have a group of chefs from Nordstrom's today, and there are eight of them from all over the country, and they're in the fields today, and they're looking and experimenting and considering products at different sizes and stages and developing recipes. And they're gonna take those products back into the kitchen at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, work with Jamie Simpson and his assistant, and they're gonna just play and create and come up with magical things to be able to share with their guests. So it was a bigger and more grandiose project than we could do on our own. So I invited chefs that had been mentors to me over the years, Danielle Ballou, uh, Lon Ducasse, Jean-Georges von Richten, Thomas Keller, Charlie Trotter, Chris Hastings, and they were able to lend their name to it. And then they brought kitchen companies in that brought some magnificent play toys for chefs to be able to play <laughs> on. And the arrangement is such that when they get a new piece, they can take the old piece out and they'll put the newest, sexiest play toy for a chef in there. And then it was opened up to the public. There's dining for a hundred there. So we do dinners that are open. And of course we haven't done any in the last year because of COVID. We actually uh, did an Airbnb with the chef suite in the past mm. year. So folks could actually go online and be able to have an overnight experience on the farm. But it was really built as a place for chefs to be able to come and chef and farmers to work together. The names you listed and and that wasn't a complete list of the chefs who helped you i know lydia bastianich was also among them i i love her and her restaurants but the list you named included the late charlie trotter mm. the yeah. chicago chef and humanitarian you have a beautiful tribute to him why was he your greatest mentor? Well, he loved vegetable. Um, Charlie Trotter did more for our family than we could ever repay. He was so visionary in so many ways and so inspiring. He too is with us here every day and he influences every decision. He was one of the first chefs in the country to offer a prefix, a vegetable prefix menu. You know, he just, he loved the vegetable. And if you look at where we're at today, you know, and where he was in the 80s. I mean, he was just ahead of his time with it. And he recognized our passion and our love for vegetable. He was on this farm several times. He broke ground on the Culinary Vegetable Institute with us. He allowed us to bring on three or four occasions, 20 different folks from our farm to the restaurant. And we rented a bus and we left at 5 a.m. and drove in and they met us at the door. And he was there to greet every person on the farm and turned our worlds upside down with exposing our team to the level of excellence and quality and integrity that they put on the plate. And it allowed our team to get a far better understanding of what goes on um, in the worlds of the chefs around the country. And of course, then when we built the Culinary Vegetable Institute and we have visiting chefs come, it just multiplied that vision and we have a better understanding of what what the trials and tribulations are on a daily basis in a chef's world. I read that when visiting a restaurant, you often ask the chef if it's possible to visit the walk-in refrigerator. What do you look for? 
Well, I always want to see what else is in there, what the competition is. I'm just always curious to see how our product is being cared for, how it's holding up, just to see what's in there. It's There's an opportunity to learn when you walk in the walk-in. And, you know, one of the things that we hear so often is that the product holds up so well. And so that's been really helpful when we, when the pandemic hit, we opened up to a nationwide home delivery for individuals to be able to get those same vegetables that the Michelin three-star chefs have been getting for 40 years now is available, you know, for folks to be able to get at home to get them something safe and healthy and quite frankly, sexy for them to be able to play with at home. So it's been exciting to see all the cooking happening at home in the last year. Will you continue that part of the business? It absolutely will. You know, it was probably a miss in not doing it before. And uh, we even opened up a roadside stand here and we had not been doing that. And the community has embraced it. And I just think that it would be unconscionable to those folks around the country that have supported our farm and shared their belief in saving small family farms through this crisis and to shut that off because the restaurants are returning. And worse, we are the restaurant's biggest cheerleaders. We're so excited to see those restaurants being able to open back up. But it's another stream that we will make the product available and it is not going away and neither will the farm stand. You include consumer tips to buying good produce in the book. Why should we be concerned about produce that's marked local? I just think that it is imperative that we have a connection with where food is coming from and who's growing it and that there's somebody conscientious. I'm not as as wrapped up on local as I am understanding who's growing it. Look at if you can find a farmer's market, I encourage you to go and support that. But ask questions and understand the difference between a farmer and a farmer's market or somebody that's buying product out of a wholesale warehouse and it's a second or third hand and we don't know who grew it, how long it's been harvested. I think it's about reconnecting with producers and end users wherever they might be. So I'm not as wrapped up on the local thing as I am a direct relationship with knowing that there's somebody conscientious at the farm level or at the fish level or at the baker level, wherever your food is coming from, have an understanding of who's growing it. And look at, I think that we have an opportunity to be able to support the things that are important to us. We have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. We think that all of those things should be considered when we're making our purchases. It's difficult at times. It's easy to go to the big back store and be able to get everything under one roof and makes it easy and families are busy. But if you can take the time to get a connection with the producers of the food and have an understanding of the way they're growing it, I think that you can support the things that are important to you. Do you want us here or do you not? If without that support, we don't exist. We're so grateful for the support, particularly in the last year But as we move into an emerging new market of plant-based plant forward of the support from folks, because quite frankly, we don't exist if there's no interest in it. Your dad had an unusually worded wish for you and your brother. How does that saying inform where you're going next with the chef's garden? Are you talking about wishing us eternal dissatisfaction? Yes. Yeah. 
he sat my brother and I down at the picnic table, the infamous picnic table out front of the farm. And it was one of those father and son talks. And what that means is that we listened and dad talked. And he looked us square in the eye and said, boys, you just don't get it, do you? He says, I wish you eternal dissatisfaction. And it kind of hurt our feelings a little bit, but you know, it's no different than a chef who goes out into the dining room and the guest has had a couple of glasses of wine and they tell the chef that, that what she, she or he has created is the best dinner that they've ever had. And I've never seen a chef go back and say, well, I've achieved my goal. That's the best dinner that she ever, <laughs> they think that the plate was too hot or the plate was too cold. It was under seasoned or it was over seasoned or something wasn't right about it. It's constantly trying to improve. Where we go next is really health and wellness. We believe that we can do the most good for society by producing the healthiest, most nutritious vegetables available, humanly possible to grow. Do we think we're there? Heck no. Are we making it strides and moving towards it? We're absolutely moving in the right direction. My dad also had another saying, you can be on the right set of tracks and still get run over if you're not moving fast enough. <laughs> Always a sense of urgency, as Thomas Keller has a plaque in his restaurant that says sense of urgency. And there is a sense of urgency to be able to improve and to do a better job at growing really nutritious, healthy, good flavored vegetables and making them abundantly available for all of society. Farmer Lee Jones, this has been a complete joy for me learning so much from your book. And our conversation has just been a delight. Thank you so very much. I am just so honored to be on with you. And I would extend an invitation. Come up and see us sometime. It's just been an honor. And I have to say, your voice is just so magical over the, <laughs> you pull me in with your voice. And thank you so much for your interest. This is so much more important than a book. We're grateful to all of your listeners out there. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of being able to stay on a small family farm and do the best we can. Oh, I can't wait to visit. Thank you again. Absolutely. We'll leave the light on for you. James Beard Award winner, Farmer Lee Jones and his family grow specialty ingredients for restaurants in all 50 states and a dozen other countries. His new book is The Chef's Garden, a modern guide to common and unusual vegetables. For more information, visit our website wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Over the past eight years, the Atlanta History Center has hosted an annual Juneteenth celebration commemorating the date when the last enslaved African Americans were pronounced free people. This year's celebration will focus on ways to honor and support our city's Juneteenth cultural traditions. The Atlanta History Center's Jessica Van Landite and Christian Weatherspoon worked together on this year's programming, 
They join us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you, Lois. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Christian, how do you hope this year's content will convey the importance of the story of Juneteenth? For us here at the History Center, you know, we are are committed to telling a really complete story of history. And I think, you know, specifically for a commemorative time like Juneteenth, that is so important because as you talk about, obviously, the historical impact of that time, how so many of the same issues have impacted African-American communities, you know, here within Atlanta, it's an important connection to draw out. And so I think the idea behind this year's celebration here at the History Center in a virtual space was to really allow those stories to be lifted up and to really talk about the, you know, the struggles, but the triumphs as well. That's why you see in the programming this year, programming specifically around C.T. Vivian, Mm. um, you know, who's a, a great kind of case study in kind of those, you know, struggles through civil rights, you know, up to now and his amazing leadership. You'll also see stories specifically about the Atlanta Black Crackers, the Negro League team that played here in Atlanta for some years, and covering themes ranging from segregated play here in Atlanta and across the country, and kind of the connection, you know, between the Negro Leagues and baseball today. And those are all really important stories to tell a really complete story of history. And so that has been the goal for this year. But, you know, beyond June, beyond Juneteenth, it is a goal here at the History Center in general. Jessica, I see that the programming contains virtual panel discussions, digital content, and community activities. What are your goals behind this year's programming? Well, really, the exciting thing about the virtual offering is that it lives the entire month of June. Uh, So we are not bound to one weekend or one day of commemoration. We've got the entire month to really kind of explore the variety of stories that Chris has mentioned here. And so the goal on the one hand is to Chris's point on uplifting these stories of uh, triumph and celebration, uh, the cultural aspects of Uh, the holiday, as well as those kinds of legacies. And the fact that these virtual offerings are live this entire month and will live on our website, the accessibility that this offers, this breaks down barriers for us in a variety of ways to allow guests from not only our region, but around the country to experience how special this holiday is and what good uh, programming that we have available. Christian, What can you share with us about the digital content you're creating? Yeah, so the digital content is really focused on telling stories and making, linking the past and present experiences of people within our community and really showing how they have shaped and continue to inform our future. You know, although we are not going to be together in person, for example, our, we have a driving tour of the Bush Mountain, the historic Bush Mountain community here in Atlanta. And It actually was an on-campus installation and driving tour before the pandemic. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to basically kind of revamp that and give people some very specific places to go and learn about African-American history um, within Atlanta. You'll see that on our website this month uh, with a list of, like I said, these historic locations that not only tell you where they are, but give you the history of the people and the events that happened at those locations. 
A moment ago, you mentioned the amazing life of C.T. Vivian. What determined who will take part on that virtual panel discussion? Well, that panel discussion is actually going to be part of our author talk segment. Um, You have Steve Pfeiffer, who's a co-author of his memoir, It's in the Action. Um, Al Vivian, who is his son, who will obviously be able to provide, you know, lots of those personal experiences with him that we are so excited to hear about. And Ambassador Andrew Young, who needs no introduction at all. (laughs) That idea of making those past and present connections, you know, C.T. Vivian is probably one of the best examples, you know, we have of the strength in activism, the strength in leadership, um, and the strength in kind of taking what has, you know, what's happened historically and figuring out, you know, how do we not allow that to happen again? And so I think that is this actual author talk here in conversation with Ernie Suggs from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I will just give us um, a really good look into the life of C.T. Vivian and his amazing work here in Atlanta. You mentioned the Atlanta Black Crackers earlier in your overview. This was the professional Negro League baseball team that played in Atlanta before the integration of baseball. What's the historical importance of the team? Well, the historical importance of that team is that, you know, as the Atlanta Black Crackers existed and played within Atlanta on and off from 1919 to 1949. And so a lot of that featured uh, content will really allow us to, like I said, explore a range of themes, you know, around segregation. And also, Lois, the really interesting connection between the Negro League and um, HBCU, Historically Black College and University Baseball. And I think, you know, all of that wraps around kind of highlighting the impact of just the Negro League players and the Negro League kind of system, you know, within baseball now. Jessica, another part of the program is an exhibition about Black citizenship in the age of Jim Crow. How does this feature inform viewers or visitors of the struggle for full citizenship rights for African Americans? Right. Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow is actually an exhibition that we had on site. It was developed by the New York Historical Society. When it traveled to Atlanta, we created a local component incorporating a variety of stories from Atlanta history, as well as some of the kind of cultural touchstones, educational touchstones of the city. That exhibition now lives fully virtually online, a really beautiful format that allows you to see the objects up close, to read panels, to see maps, to really get an understanding of that story. And that really focuses on the um, kind of time between Reconstruction and World War One, and telling that story of, again, the struggles and triumphs of Black citizens uh, in the United States. So I'm really happy because that exhibition was closed down because of the pandemic during lockdown, but now it lives online. So again, towards the idea that our virtual content is not a placeholder during a pandemic. It is here to serve new audiences, to widen our reach. For all of the disappointments we had, that folks will not be able to see that exhibition in person. Now you have the opportunity online for that really wonderful, rich experience, especially with the Atlanta components uh, that gives our region kind of an understanding of the role of Atlanta during that time period. I remember We spoke before that exhibition opened, and one of the strengths of the show 
was how much it brought home that the civil rights movement didn't just begin in the 50s and culminate in the 60s. Right. This is the long road of civil rights for our country's history, kind of involving generations and the understanding of this long road of civil rights, this long road of citizenship that we are. Each generation has its own struggles and leaves a legacy for the next generation to build on. And we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to put uh, exhibitions online, to create new content in this way that will live on our website and live, you know, next year virtually and in person so that we can continue our work of community building in Atlanta. The Atlanta History Center's free virtual Juneteenth programming is available throughout this month and includes live-streamed panel discussions tonight as well as on June 21st. Learn more on our website at wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Tropes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also listen back to past interviews and find our archive stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.